Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because, it, because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Connor. Would you, um, kind of having heard really the very best part of the sermon already, would you stand just a moment longer as we commend this time to the Lord in prayer? Lord, it is a thing that... Weary as we are, waffling as we are, tired as we are, rebellious as we are, you by your spirit bring us to come and sit under your word. And so we're here, Lord. But also we're stubborn. We're here, but we're stubborn and hard-hearted. And your word is hard. And so we ask by your spirit, that you would do a new work in us this morning, soften our hearts, make plain the scriptures, give us hope, give us faith, and Lord, a double door, portion of your grace and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
Well, good morning, everyone. If I've never had the pleasure of meeting you, my name's Ronnie. I'm the senior pastor here. So today, we're continuing in our sermon series on these seven I am statements of Jesus. And I am uh, really continually reminded of how these strange and ancient words are still relevant for people like us. You know, see, mankind has always been plagued, and I mean plagued with questions. And and when I say questions, I mean the big ones, questions of ultimate meaning and purpose. Like, who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? What's expected of me? And what happens to me when I die? Now, Christianity speaks decisively to these questions, but at different times in history, rival responses or rival options present themselves. And uh, these options have taken on a different shape through history. So like in the first century, uh, there were a handful of philosophical choices that, that one could choose, like hedonism or stoicism or Platonism as a sort of guiding principle to these questions. Um, And then, of course, throughout history with the emergence of various uh, world religions, we have Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, Islam. And in modern times, particularly coming out of Europe and then into the West, we have seen really the emergence of secularism, You know, an increasing number of people identify as secular as it gains and increases influence in newsrooms and universities. Uh, But the, the big offering, I would say, like the big offering right now is a sort of collective path of religious ideas. It's, it's kind of like a cousin to secularism. It's the spiritual but not religious idea that is some amalgamation of on one hand, like sort of Christian ideals, but that meeting reincarnation and with a little bit of capitalism or kind of whatever's big in Hollywood, and it all kind of gets thrown together. And, it, and it's not really internally consistent, but it is a growing choice, a growing option, a rival response. But then you start reading the life of Jesus, And you clearly see that he stands in stark contrast to all of this. The Bible puts forward a a radically different, but gloriously wonderful and frequently misunderstood story of God reaching down to us. Like when you read the perplexing, and I mean perplexing words of Jesus, you see that he fuels this idea, this premise that Jesus is God, always has been. At a certain point in history, he robes himself with humanity while remaining God. And then he enters into history through a virgin's womb. He lives a perfect life and he dies this undeserved but substitutionary death to pay our Moral debt. Like that, that's God reaching down. See, all other religions or systems are just life reaching upwards. That is, they all present either laws to fulfill or ideals to embody. 
so that you might have just some certainty that you're a good person, living a good life. But the Bible insists that we are too broken, too spiritually dead, and that we can't save ourselves. And that is precisely why God had to reach down and we can't reach up. Now, if you've never heard any of that, if you're just like listening in, that's like mind-boggling. It's, it's crazy. It's, it really is mind-boggling. And all of this hinges on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that being the case, we need to get this right. The question that the Gospel of John poses to Jesus and answers is this. Who are you? And that is the same question that the religious people in our text asked him. Who are you? And John, the writer of the gospel, cares deeply about this question. And that's how come he records seven different responses of Jesus saying, I am, and then blank. So today, we are studying the second of those responses when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Now that is, that is quite a thing to say. Like if someone were to walk in on us on this stage and say, hey guys, I am the light of the world. That would be a narcissistic pretentious pretension of the highest order. And yet with Jesus, somehow with his meek and earnest and loving disposition, those words hit the hearts of people completely different. And so this morning, I want us to wrestle with this claim that Jesus is the light of the world. Because here's the deal. All of us are swimming in that secular amalgamation of beliefs. But I think the ice is melting a little bit. I think we're starting to see the absurdity of it all. Like it doesn't answer those questions that we deeply need answered. We're starting to see the absurdity. And because of that, what happens is that the words of Jesus, though perplexing, become more sweet and more hopeful. And so to study this passage, we're going to explore this metaphor that Jesus applies to himself. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at how light is three things. And so if you're a note taker, this is this is our, head, our three headings. We're going to see a light is subversive, light is confusing, and light is essential. Subversive, confusing, essential. It's going to be a pretty dense sermon. So let's, uh, let's dig, into the, dig into this. First, light is subversive. So this particular metaphor is perhaps one of Jesus' most rich, and not in part because history and science have kind of helped us to understand the complexity and the expansiveness of light. So, for instance, we know that light is crucial. It's the source of life. If there was no sun, all life would completely cease. We know that uh, without light, people get depressed. Uh, it gives us vitamin D. We know that unmediated light or sheer light would make us uh, go blind or uh, expose us to cancer, right? If there wasn't an ozone layer to sort of diffuse it, diffuse some of that, the radiation. We know that 
light uh, illuminates things, allowing uh, for the human eye to be able to see and perceive. Uh, we even use light to describe history, right? The dark ages where, you know, when knowledge was presumably suppressed, and then what? The enlightenment is presumably when we're given new insight and, and we learn what's actually true or something like that. Now, different than us, the original audience of John chapter 8 would have associated this metaphor more through a biblical lens. And that's actually what makes Jesus' claim so subversive. See, light is not thought about primarily through this sort of scientific lens or biological lens, uh, but it's primarily associated with God. This idea that there is power behind light is seen right away in the beginning of the Genesis account when we see that one of the very first things that God is doing, he is doing what? He's separating the light from the darkness. Let there be light. And themes of light continue. I mean, do you remember? Do y'all remember when Moses wanted to see the face of God? God said, no one can see my face and live, right? Because it's like this holy, incinerating, unbridled light. So God hides Moses in the crevice of a rock. He uh, is nice enough to pass before him. Moses gets a peek at the very, very back end of the train of his robe. And it was still so bright that even days later, Moses is wearing a veil over his face because it is still reflecting the brilliant, I mean, just reflecting the brilliant light of God. Those are the kinds of references that were in the imagination of the people hearing this. It's then no surprise that we see light again in the, in the New Testament when Jesus is transfigured, when he's sitting there, right, with Elijah and Moses. Jesus is so bright that his clothes are, 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 are glowing. We know that Jesus appears to Saul at the time his name or Paul, his name was then Saul, right, on the road to Damascus. And he peers in a light so bright that it literally knocks him down and it blinds him with a light that's brighter than the sun. And then when John the Baptist emerges, you know, needing a bath, eating locusts out of the wilderness, he came saying what? I come to testify to the light. But again, this helps us to understand the associations to light that people had. And it's into that particular social imagination that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And, and those words, just that verse would have hit their ears in at least three ways. So, like, first, Jesus as the light is fundamental to life. Just as a, a farmer's crop won't grow without light, a person cannot live without Jesus. The, the Jewish religious system was insufficient. It was not enough for them to grow. Just like the light, Jesus is fundamental to life and growth. Second, Jesus as, as the light is necessary for seeing, right? To see truth, to see reality. So the Old Testament provided only a, a dim version of the truth. It was true, but it was incomplete. And only in light of Jesus, 
pun intended, only in light of Jesus can one see and know God. Our, lives, our eyes are blind to God without Jesus. And then third, Jesus as the light reveals the darkness in us, our shadows. As one follows Jesus, he or she will not walk in darkness, as he says. The holiness of Jesus has this way of, like, of exposing us for the frauds that we really are. And so you can, you can see, right, how a religious leader who has based their entire life and reputation on being good, on fulfilling the law, you can see, right, you can imagine how that person would have been immediately unnerved when Jesus says, you walk in darkness. It was just like a symbol for moral decay. You walk in darkness if you don't follow me. So Jesus is ruining the entire system. And he's ruining our system. Jesus claims that he is fundamental to life. He claims that our eyes can't see God or truth for that matter without him. That he is the light of life. And that following Jesus is the only path that can make us whole before the holy eyes of God. Otherwise, even with our good deeds, we persist in darkness. I am the light of the world. This claim is not an easy one. And if it doesn't sound subversive, you're not paying attention. But see, light is not only subversive, it's also confusing. And this is our second point. So those of you who've done Physics 101, you know how like the properties of light can kind of make your brain explode, right? I mean, sometimes light behaves as a particle. Sometimes it behaves like a wave. And for all of our scientific advancements, we don't really understand how it can be both at the same time. But here we are. I wish what Jesus were saying were as easy as explaining that, explaining like the properties of light, but it's actually worse. It's far more perplexing. And let me kind of set up the context. So you'll notice that when Jesus makes the self-proclamation in verse 12, he was doing so in the treasury. And it says that in verse 20. That is also in the court of the women inside of the Jewish temple. Now, not only is Jesus in the temple, but we learn from chapter 7 that this entire scene happens during the Feast of Booths. Now, sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of three sort of big religious festivals where Jewish males were expected to travel, uh, do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to be there in person for this event. So it was um, a celebration of the harvest. It took place in the fall. But more than a celebration of the harvest, it also remembers and it rehearses God leading his people through the desert and then keeping them alive, you know, during the exodus and after the exodus in the wilderness. So if you'll remember, during the exodus, God leads the people of Israel by day through a cloud. So, like, clouds on one hand, like, you can imagine, like, since they're in the desert, it would have been a very welcomed respite from the brutal sun, right? If you've ever 
been outside in the middle of summer on a clear day here in Colorado, you, you know, right, just how sunlight can be oppressive. It doesn't take long. Uh, but that cloud that's leading them is actually the same word in Hebrew that refers to the glory cloud, the glory of God, like the Shekinah glory. And so during the day, God manifests his nearness, right, his presence through this cloud. Now, by night, God provides light by being manifest in a column of fire. Like, none of us really know what deep darkness is like because there's so much, like, light pollution in cities and so forth. But in the ancient world, night could be so heavy that it felt uh, palpable. So a column of fire would have been a welcome sight. God was this welcome column of light. So in this festival, the Festival of Booths, Israel is celebrating and rehearsing this season, right, that I just described, when God took care of them. And so they, they would set up all these small little tents or these little shelters all over around the temple. Uh, and they would live in them for these eight days to kind of commemorate what, commemorate what it was like for their ancestors who were like nomads at the time, wandering through the deserts. Now, during this festival, there were two notable rituals that would happen. The first ritual is called the water pouring ceremony. So the priest would get water from one part of Jerusalem and fill up like these big cisterns of water and they would take them to the temple. And at a very specific time, they would pour out these huge cisterns onto the altar and it would flow down all the way down, down the steps of the temple, like this rushing, rushing flow. One ancient source reflected on this ritual and said, he who hasn't seen the joy of water pouring has never seen joy in this life. So clearly, like, this is a big deal. Like, you have not lived unless you have seen this water ritual, which commemorates what? It commemorates how God provided water for his people in the desert. In chapter 7, like, this is the, the first part of this uh, uh, of this. Um, of this festival, Jesus would look at the masses during that ceremony and say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So you can see where the confusion is starting to bubble up. Again, pun intended. But there's a second ritual during the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is the lighting of the lamps. So each night, they would take these big bowls and they would put them in the court of the women and they would fill these bowls with these highly flammable coals and, and wood and they would set them on top of these four constructed massive candelabras and it lit up the whole place with this brilliant light. Uh, an ancient rabbinic source recorded that the people would literally dance all night, all night long in celebration under these candelabras. And, and these lights represent what? The column of fire that led Israel through the Red Sea and into the Sinai Peninsula. And wherever the column of fire would go, the people would follow. But now on the eighth night of this festival, 
the candelabras would be extinguished. It's kind of a long explanation, but it kind of, it's to symbolize Ezekiel's vision and lament of the glory leaving Israel. And the commentators tell us, presumably, that on that night, Jesus says, the lights, when the lights go down, he says, I am the light of the world. Like, you don't need this candelabra. You don't need a prophet. You don't need anything. You don't need the law. You don't need a temple. You don't need sacrifices. Like, Jesus is putting himself right in the place of God. He is the consuming and column of fire. He is the light of the world. And this is when the argument, this is when the argument ensues, right? Look at verse 13. The Pharisee said to Jesus, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And what they're saying is you can't appear as your own witness. Your witness is not valid in Jewish law because there had to be two witnesses in court. And so they're saying this is crazy because you are only one source. And then Jesus responds to that kind of with two responses. First, you'll see there, verse 14, he says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not, right? So Jesus is doing this comparison between him, them, and he's showing them that he has infinite knowledge. Therefore, he is because he has infinite knowledge, he is particularly suited to bear witness and to give evidence because he says so. <laughs> because he says so. But then he gives a second response. And the second one is kind of, it describes his relationship to the Father. Look at verse 16. He says, yet even if I do judge or if I do give testimony, my Judgment or my testimony is true, for it is not I alone who give testimony, but I and the Father who sent me. So Jesus is binding his own testimony with God, the maker of the universe. And so now the Pharisees are thoroughly confused. They think he's speaking about his biological father. That's why they said in verse 19, he's like, they're like, well, where's your father? Like, did he come to the festival? You know, where is he? So you can kind of see there's this confusion. Like, what gives him the right to make authoritative claims like this? And what he's doing is communicating that he must, in himself, be the evidence for his own claim. See, nestled within this is that he is affirming to be the ultimate source of light, the ultimate source of truth. Therefore, he cannot point to any other evidence. To do so would suggest that there is a kind of evidence that exists out there that is a greater authority or a greater light. But he in himself is the ultimate authority and evidence. And so he must only point to himself as he speaks about himself. Now, that might sound like circular reasoning, and that might be the case if he weren't God. You see what I'm saying? Like, the reasoning doesn't work for anyone unless you're God. And that's why this is so powerful, a bit confusing, and redemptively disorienting. Listen, throughout history... There have been many religious figures who have said 
that they have access to the light, that they, they can provide a pathway to the light. But like no one claims to be light. Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be the Messiah, the King of Kings. He claims to be the Creator. He claims to be eternal. He makes the biggest possible claims that anyone could make. Jesus is unlike any other religious leader you could have. Listen, you can have Islam without Muhammad. You can have Buddhism without Buddha. You can even have Judaism without Abraham or Moses. Why? Because none of those people are pointing to themselves. They're pointing to a path. They're pointing to an insight. They're pointing to a way forward, to certain ideals. But Jesus is saying that he is ultimate truth and flourishing. And that the whole world is actually not even dependent on his teaching, but dependent on him. Now, 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 don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that other religious systems can't say true things, that they can't advance aspects of truth that are good and helpful for human flourishing. That's true. But that's not what's happening with Jesus. Jesus is saying something far more, far deeper. He's saying, unless you relate to me, unless you trust me, Unless you love me and let me love you, then you can never know ultimate truth or even know the God who is there. Jesus is saying all of this in the middle of the festival of tabernacles as the lights went out. Like it's dark, but no worries. The light, which is far brighter, is still here. And the religious leaders figure out exactly what he's doing because John tells us in verse 20, look there in your Bibles, that no one arrested him because his hour had not come. See, the writer makes the clarification that no one arrested him. Why? Precisely because you would expect that someone would arrest him. In modern parlance of Jesus' action, them are fighting words. <laughs> But don't fight. Lay down your arms. Lay down your defenses. Hear Jesus' words. Let them work on your soul. Believe him. Believe him. And this brings us to our final point in this study. So, so far we looked at how the light is subversive and how the light is confusing. But now we're going to see point three, the light is essential. It's always surprising to me how damaging uh, the sun can be. Listen, I'm a Latino. I fare okay in the sun. I'm okay, better than my wife. And, uh, you know, I could remember even still I would play for hours in that Caribbean sun uh, on those Puerto Rican be be beaches. And if I did not prepare, although I am brown, uh, my brown skin would turn seriously red. And I can remember when we were going to move to Colorado thinking to myself like, oh, I'll never have to worry about the sun again. It can't be as bad as the Caribbean sun. Famous last words. 
Y'all, the sun hurts here even when it's cloudy. You would think that some celestial body 93 million miles away would be a safe distance. But here we are. But for as dangerous as the sun is, can you imagine what, it would be, what life would be like without it? You can't. Because all of life would cease to exist. Life is not possible without the sun. It is essential. In the same way, Jesus speaks to the devastating effects of his light going away. Look now there at verse 21. He said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Again, the confusion persists a little bit. The Jews thought he was like talking about suicide. But what Jesus is doing is doubling down on his self-identity. And let me explain. Let's go back. Let's go back to the book of Exodus one more time to kind of feel the weight of this. So there's this man. You know, his name's Moses. He's walking around in the Midian desert in the wilderness, and he sees a bush. But the bush is burning. Now, this burning bush seemed a little bit out of place for what he expected in the desert. So he goes close to investigate it, and he realizes that the bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And this is categorically a different kind of light than he was used to or had ever even seen. And then all of a sudden, the voice of God speaks to him out of the bush, out of this light, and says, I have chosen you to be my agent to free my people from, the slave, from slavery in Egypt. Therefore, I want you to go to Pharaoh, y'all remember this, and tell him to let my people go. A little bit of conversation ensues. Moses leaves with the courage to follow through and do precisely what God had called him to do. But before he leaves, he asks, he says, got to have one more question. When I go and tell the Hebrews of this plan that you just gave me, they're going to ask, who sent me? What should I say to them? And God says, tell them I am sent you. Like, my name is I am. I am who I am. So this is the covenantal name of God. This is the, the tetragrammaton, the holy of holiest name of God. I mean, Jews would not even dare say this word out loud. If they even wrote it down, they'd rip it and burn it up or eat it and consume it. This is like God's formal first name that you do not take lightly. Now, remembering this story, let's go back to Jesus and his exchange with these Jews, with these religious leaders. So Jesus is keeping up this highly coded language. Look what he says there in verse 23 and 24. He says, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And then continues in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Keep your eyes on verse 24. In your English Bibles, your, your translators have done you the favor of adding two words to make it grammatically make sense. But 
the sentence should actually read like this. Unless you believe I am, right? So they added that and he. Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus is not saying, unless you believe I am he. Jesus is saying, unless you believe I am God. Unless you believe I am who I am. The same one who did all of these things for Israel. You will die in your sins. That's why they ask in verse 25, who are you? That's the question Jesus wants us to have settled. Who is Jesus? Jesus is not simply saying he is an expression of light. He is saying that he is the source of light. And he is saying that he is so essential that if you are not connected to the source of light, then your soul will die. Listen, Jesus is like so loving and meek and, and, and kind and generous. But he is who he is. And he says what he says. Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness. But will have the light of life. That light is so bright. That it is painful. Before it is ever healing and warming. Like every time there's like a solar eclipse, all of us desperately want to stare at the sun, right? But looking at it with a, like unmediated would like burn out our retinas. And so what do we do? We get those, those specialized little solar eclipse glasses, right? You know what I'm talking about. And then what do we do? We put them on and we can look and see the sun. By God's grace, I have... We have something that the people in this passage did not have. We have this apparatus to be able to see Jesus and his brilliance. And Jesus alludes to it. Look there in verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. He does it again there. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. When you have lifted up the Son of Man. Do you know, do you know what he's saying there? Like, do you know when the Son of Man is lifted up? Like, the Son of Man is lifted up just after his hands and his feet are nailed to two planks of wood. Just after his head is adorned with thorns. And right after that, the cross is hoisted up high into the air. And that is when the Son of Man is lifted up. It's on the cross. Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. 
That rugged cross is the specialized solar eclipse glasses that our eyes absolutely need to be able to see him for who he truly is. And the light of the world had his light unjustly extinguished. Why? To purchase you and me to pay for our moral debt. And so that we could see him for who he truly is. And so that we could carry a cross too. And though the crowds were hesitant at first sight with Jesus, verse 30 tells us that as he was saying these things, many, many believed in him. And, that, and that's my prayer for us. Jesus, light of the world, high and lifted up. Look upon this cross and believe in him. And believe him at his word, although his words are hard. And then rest in him. Amen.